Hey there, it's Paula Ferris from Journeys of Faith. When you have an opportunity to interview the bishop, and by the bishop, I'm talking about Bishop T.D. Jakes, you make it happen. So on this episode, I flew to Dallas. Jake says he's not a rich kid's son who inherited a church from a fifth-generation pastor. He has a scuffed and scarred history, and he tells me why when he knew he was being called into the ministry, he ran from it. On this episode, Bishop Jakes tells us how he really feels about that term, megachurch, and why he believes that God can do the most amazing things with the most unlikely people. Here's Bishop T.D. Jakes on this episode of Journeys of Faith. So honored to have the presence of the one and only Bishop T.D. Jakes on the podcast. So nice to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Should I call you Bishop, Reverend, Pastor? It really doesn't matter. <laughs> Everybody calls me Bishop. It's almost uh, uh, almost like a nickname now, but you can call me anything you want. I'm totally comfortable with it. <laughs> well, can I ask, what is the differentiation between Bishop, Pastor, and Reverend? Uh I could do, I can clearly answer Bishop and Pastor Reverend gets a little foggy. I think it's a little bit more tradit Reverend is a traditional term uh in my world that that was very strongly used amongst uh the Baptist people and and maybe some other denominations as well. And so it's kind of a denominational hinge. But when you think of bishop and pastor, you think of the difference between positions and the hierarchy of the church. Bishop is generally, in our reformations, a pastor of pastors. So he has oversight of other leaders up under him. Some people would call him in other denominations a superintendent, uh, but it just means that I have pastors under me that are accountable to me. That's a really great explanation. I didn't know that. You know, we we explore faith and, and our personal faith journeys on this podcast, and you've long been a believer, but how did you find your faith? You grew up in West Virginia in a small town, and I know you took care of your, your father who who died of kidney disease back in 82, and you've said that that's kind of how you found your faith. Tell me a little bit about what that looked like for you. Uh, you know, finding faith for me has been a journey and not just one event. And that's not just, that's not to say that I didn't have an event of conversion. I absolutely did. But that event of conversion didn't complete finding my faith. I think that that's a journey that we go on in life. And, uh, it started for me as a child being raised, uh, in a Christian environment, been involved in church most of my life. I had a few detours, but mostly most of my life in some aspect of church. But finding God in the midst of church is a process because for me, there's a difference between religion and relationship. And so you have to kind of clear past all of the religious fodder to get down to the personal relationship, which is what the heart longs for. I don't want necessarily to be a part of another society or group or club with rules and regulations or fraternity of believers with hierarchy, though I represent that, the deeper dive for the hunger of the soul is for relationship. And so that relationship, like all relationships, grows and unfolds as you walk with God. You begin to understand more fully who he is and who you are in relationship to who he is. So you 
You pastored your first church at age 23. You had 10 members in the church. You were so young that other ministries were calling you the boy pastor. Mm -hmm. What was it like to pastor a church so young? I was actually 22. Oh, you were 22? I was 22, and I wasn't married. Uh, it, it was, it was great training ground. <laughs> it was great training ground. So you didn't know what you were doing back then? No, no, I, I'm just still not sure I know what I'm doing. But, but it was great training ground. I had a heart to do it, but having a heart to do it and having the experience to do it is, is, is a process. Nothing prepares pastors for pastoring other than experience. Not universities, not seminaries, none of it. Head knowledge is great. But when you take that head knowledge and you apply it to people's lives, you soon find out that that what they train you for is not enough. So irrespective to which method you you approach ministry, uh, face-to-face with the traumas of the times, it's inevitable that you recognize your own inadequacies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because people have problems for which you don't have easy answers. And 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 the admission of that is important. The admission that I'm imperfect. Yes. I'm fallible. I'm fallible and I don't know everything and I can't fix everything and I can't help everybody. And sometimes I fail at doing that and sometimes I succeed at doing that. And sometimes the times I thought I was successful, I wasn't. And sometimes the times I thought I failed, I didn't. I tell you what, it's kind of like, and I didn't real, <clears throat> I didn't realize this until I got married and had children. You it's have kinda, five kids. I have five children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like parenting. You don't know what you're doing. You're not always right. You don't always get it perfect. And sometimes you fail when you thought you did a great job and then you find a detour and sometimes you think I'm doing a terrible job and the kid makes a U-turn and does amazing. It's really a lot like parenting. Yeah, that's a really, that's a, I love that analogy because parenting is a journey. You never, you don't ever just check in and say, I've done it. I've accomplished it. You're always a parent. That's right. Uh, so you started out in Montgomery, West Virginia. Moved, your church moved to Charleston, West Virginia. And then you moved 50 families to Dallas, which is where we're doing the interview today. It's where the Potter's house is. Why did you make that move back in 96 with 50 families to move here? One of the greatest things a leader can know is when you're finished. And one of the hardest things for a leader to know who is a loyalist is when they let go. Uh, and I felt like I had done everything and learned everything that I needed to learn at that stage in that place. There were new classes to take, new horizons to be on. Uh, my ministry had grown to the point uh, on television that I was traveling a lot. It was very difficult to get in and out of the city. Those were practical reasons. But the deeper reason is my journey took me to Dallas. Mm-hmm. You felt and, God yes. called you to go to Dallas. Oh, absolutely. I would have never uprooted. Mm-hmm. I had never left before. That was scary to leave home. Everything I know, I mean, I know all the West Virginia songs and all the <laughs> counties and all the West Virginia history and and came to Texas which is in, in many ways very different from, from West Virginia. And, and there in Texas, you begin to have a fresh encounter with God. 
And uh, I had no idea when I came to Dallas that the church was going to explode like it did. I came there with 50 families, and in in two years I had over 10,000 members, and then 20, and then 30 and that was exciting and horrifying all at the same time. <laughs> yes. I thought, oh How am I supposed to shepherd all these people? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I started with less than 10. So, you know, you had to build systems that I never had to build before, an infrastructure that I'd never seen before. Um, it, it was daunting. It was, it was uh, distracting. It, it, it was intimidating. And, and sometimes... It was trial and error learning how to do that in a world that is demanding you affect the community and, and meet with leaders in the White House and do all of this other kind of stuff. And I'm still trying to figure out how do I build a team and an infrastructure at home that I can, that I can trust and that, that the people can trust. That's a challenge for a lot of churches that just explode. You know, they don't necessarily have the infrastructure right. there, so you have to have people you trust. So now, how many how many members do you have? It's about forty thousand. Forty thousand. So you shepherd forty thousand people. You you pastor a mega church. What do you think about that term? Terms can be dangerous because not just that term, but any term where we label people, you get baggage that you might not have earned yourself, but comes from people doing comparisons with others in that people group. And I think that those terms become easy ways to have stereotypical ideas about something that is not at all monolithic, that is as unique as the individual themselves and the ministries that that are led by them. And while I'm not offended by the term by any means, mm-hmm. and we have to call it something, right? it's just that often in the minds of people that comes with the baggage of their assumptions. What would you call it if you didn't call it a megachurch? A family. Really big family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had five kids, so I'm kind of used yes, to exactly. the big family idea. Yeah. We're, we're, we're a real big family, loving family, complicated uh, family and and I feel every Sunday morning like I'm in my living room. What what are some of the the larger challenges of pastoring a church so large? Creating intimacy, uh, creating uh, so that people don't feel isolated. Uh, one of the challenges are uh, remaining authentic to who I am because I'm not really the mega church kind of guy. I came from a storefront church, <laughs> okay? So I have a very folksy way of approaching a congregation. And so what it lends itself to is is a need to create that folksy feeling in a massive sort of way and then reach all ages and stages and ethnicities and cultures and diversities and people, several people that come to our church speak in different languages. And so to have an opportunity to cross cultural barriers, socioeconomic barriers, to make sure that you're sensitive to the needs of all types of people are very important to be generationally relevant because you may have five generations listening at you who, who don't always resonate or recognize your metaphors because they came from a different generation. 
who do not necessarily fit within the motif of your stereotypical ideas about them. Right. And, 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 and preaching broadly enough to embrace the intellectual without leaving the illiterate behind. You know, you are successful. You're a very successful pastor. You've built this huge church, but that shouldn't take away some of the struggles being on food stamps, mm-hmm. you know, having to, to use WIC. You, you, you write about you and your wife having to choose between feeding your kids or feeding yourselves. I mean, there were some really low times for you. Absolutely. And, and, and they made me who I am. That, that's, that's the most important thing about me. I'm not somebody who, who can't relate to suffering. I'm not somebody who can't relate to stress and pressure. I'm not somebody who who hasn't lived amongst the poor. And so that puts a whole different tenor and perspective on who I am. I'm not some rich kid's son who inherited a church from my fifth generation pastor and I came into the situation. I'm a bootstrap, uh, tell you exactly like it is sort of person. And, and that has made me relevant to a lot of people in a way that that did not make me have to use charisma or gimmicks or other things to imagine something that I have experienced myself. The thing about Jesus to me is that he could be touched by the people. He, he grew up amongst the people. He walked the same cobblestone streets that they did. He ate the same bread that they did. And, and he understood them culturally. I have done that on a lot of different levels. So my girth as a person is, is, is pretty comprehensive. Right. And I think that's why you command the respect of so many. You have a new book out. It's called Crushing, God Turns Pressure into Power. And I had the chance to, to read through quite a bit of it. And we, we touched on it a little bit earlier, this sense of you felt God called you to Dallas and, and God called you into the ministry. You write in chapter six, titled The Price of Crushing. With everything in me, I ran from it, this calling to go into ministry. How could he pick someone who had such a scuffed and scarred history? What does calling look like? What did that sound like? What did that feel like when you knew that God was calling you into the ministry at what, age 17, I believe? Yeah, I, I knew it at 17. It was horrifying. Um, horrifying? Yes. Why was it so horrifying? Be- because that wasn't what I planned for me. And mm-hmm. What did you plan for you? I wasn't sure yet, and I wanted to pick that for myself. I'm strong-willed and opinionated, and I'm also multifaceted. I didn't want to be locked down into some stereotypical idea of clergy because I knew that would come with a prison, and I wanted to be free to explore myself. And I'm and I became I, I am pretty free, uh, but I was afraid I wouldn't be. And and what calling looks like is purpose, the nagging pull of a deeper purpose than what you are currently experiencing. It's, 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 it's what a magnet looks like to metal. It's, it's a pull. It's an inner pull. It's a tugging of your soul. And it's, though we say we say yes to it, there's no way to say no to it because you don't need a pulpit to do it. I was doing it. Even while I was saying no, I was doing it. I would be, in, be sitting in a living room, and next thing I know, everybody's listening at me talk, and I've got people gathered all around me in the restaurant till the restaurant closes. You, 
This is not about doing. It's about being. You either are it or you're not. It's not something you decide to go do. You either, you are either wired that way or you are not really that. You're inherently meant to do this or you're Absolutely. not. Yeah. So you, you go on to say that there was something else that played in my resistance to God's assignment for my life. I not only thought myself unworthy of what God was calling me to do, in all honesty, I didn't want it. So two things to unpack there. You thought yourself unworthy yes. of this calling? How so? You, you mentioned a little bit ago you had a scuffed and scarred history. I, I don't think that anybody is good enough to represent Jesus. Gosh, <laughs> uh, my idea of it, it is not so much my idea of, of who I am that makes me unworthy. It is my idea of who he is. That's a pretty high thing. You know, uh, take up your cross and follow me, which is the catalyst of the book Crushing. I'm talking about this, this invitation that Christ gives us to join him in suffering. And, 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 and I knew that that would be a part of it. And you know, let me interject this because, uh, I'm not suffering now. I have suffered. I'm not suffering now the way people think of suffering because people think that if you have a nice home and you have a nice car and you have a nice life, you don't have suffering. No one escapes suffering. Not the beautiful, not the intellectual, not the wealthy, not the poor. Life is so designed that on every level, there there are crushing moments that engulf the human soul. And just because you don't look like you're being crushed in one way, doesn't mean you're not being crushed in another. Mm-hmm. At the height of my ministerial career, my mother had Alzheimer's. So at a moment that, that, that people were clapping and applauding me, I was just trying to get home so I could sit with her and get her to swallow applesauce. And she was my best friend. How do you, uh, I, we, I just recently lost my father and he had a massive stroke and man of God, but he basically starved to death after, after the stroke. And never regain the never regain the ability to speak or swallow or eat or drink. He was paralyzed, and you know, for us, we we had a hard time. Like, okay, God, just either take him or heal him. What is the point of this suffering? He lost sixty pounds by the time he passed within six months, and just to see him wither away into nothing was really hard. Like, how do you find God in those moments? Where is the mercy of God in that? To be honest with you, sometimes in those moments you don't see his his face. It's hidden by the enormity of the pain that you suffer. It's only in retrospect, years roll and you look back over your life and and it's pain always has a gift. It takes time to unwrap it. It ch- it changes you. It affects you. It 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 changes who you are. It changes who the survivor is. It it brings with it. Such an atrocious amount of suffering that we don't recognize the gift. Only time unwraps it where you begin to, to value life differently because of what you experience, where you begin to look at yourself differently and look at him differently and understand, uh, the whole human vulnerability. And as, as long as the suffering appeared to be as a Christian, it was just a 
flicker compared to eternity. Right. I, I will say, just having that perspective of you know, what, what my dad did give us was a gift, and the testimony to have his whole family surrounding him right. and just singing and praying over him and you know telling funny stories, that it was a gift of perspective, too. Mm-hmm. You realize how inconsequential the things are that you think are consequential, and there's so much that doesn't matter. To your point, Mary and Martha in the Bible were bickering over how to serve the Lord. One wanted to work and one wanted to sit at his feet. Lazarus getting sick brought them together. God uses some of the strangest tools to bring you to your senses, to show you what matters, to identify little petty things that you thought were important. You grow up through that pain. You mature through that pain. You start giving. You learn to be unselfish through that pain. You learn what matters through that pain. You reevaluate what you would want in a spouse through that pain. It, it, it just changes everything. It brings so many gifts with it. Um, it's very clarifying, I will say that. Absolutely. It's very clarifying. Absolutely. After the break, Bishop T.D. Jakes tells us what he thinks the role of the church should be. I want to go back to calling. I know, a little tangential, but let's go back to, you, you talked about being unworthy. You had a speech impediment. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, and I don't hear it now. Sometimes, sometimes it'll come out. <laughs> sometimes it'll come out. Sometimes my West Virginia twang will come out. Uh, but I was born with a big gap in my teeth. And, and so I had a lisp growing up as a child and it affected my speech. And I went to speech therapists and things like that. But I, but I was acutely aware that I had a lisp. God is full of oxymorons. He does, he does the most amazing things with the most unlikely people. Um, the extraordinary with the ordinary. Absolutely. And all of a sudden you find yourself, and I think that those vulnerabilities create certain humilities that are necessary to balance against the weight of exposure that he had for me. I never, I never lost sight of who I was. I never got swallowed up in, in, in my persona. I'm very much grounded in who I am as a person. And that's, that's such a good thing. Uh, I wasn't drunken off of the, the applause of the crowd. Uh, in fact, I had trouble. You could have been easily though. Yeah. Yeah. I could have. And been. you could be today. Yeah. Somehow most, to be honest with you, I was almost blinded to it. I was so busy trying to manage it and work it out and figure it out that I didn't have much time to clap for it or even acknowledge it. It's only as I get older that I look back at it and I think, wow, (laughs) that actually happened to you. You know, but, but when it was happening, I was just trying not to ruin it. It's like being on air on a live TV show. You know, you you can't enjoy it. You just try not to do anything so dumb. You try not to ruin yourself by saying something stupid. Exactly. That's kind of how that was for me. When you try to run away from God's calling, you knew God was calling you into ministry. You say if you're wired to do something, and you try to run from it. You say the more I protested, the more he affirmed his call to me, the more I ran, the faster he chased. Is that what happens when we're called and we try to run away from it? Absolutely. 
Uh, he has a way of shutting doors, and uh, he has a way of speaking in the strangest places. I can remember being in a nightclub and a guy telling me, I had the weirdest dream about you, man. We're sitting on a bar stool, and he says, I dreamed you were preaching. Now, that's not just coincidental. No. I got up and left the bar. You didn't want to hear it. I did not want to hear that. That was just, that's why I was there in the first place. I didn't want that. Uh, sometimes today it's different. Some some of what I see going into the ministry today, they want it too bad. I, I find that sometimes not wanting it and not feeling worthy creates an a natural humility, not a simulated religious humility. You know, oh, bless God, none of that kind of <laughs> stuff like that. You know, <laughs> you know, just none of that kind of foolishness. If I only get one question when I get to heaven, I, I promise you, the question is going to be, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, what, come on, Lord. Now that we're here, this is all over. What in the world were you thinking? And, and that, uh, how can you say that? Look at your ministry. Yeah. You have such a huge platform right now. Yeah, but it's not just about the ministry. It's, it's that we have this treasure in the earthen vessels. It's that he sends us out as sheep amongst wolves. Um, what I love most about the ministry is the experiences I got to have, the places I got to go see, the people I got to meet. I wouldn't take anything in this world for the people I got to meet, the most amazing people. And the ministry, because of the ministry, I ended up in the birthplace of Mandela, you know. You know, you, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the ministry, I ended up in the, in the living room of Coretta Scott King because, because of the ministry, I get, got to meet all of these historical characters and presidents and kings and, 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 and paupers. I, I, I got to, I got to go in a hut in Africa that was made out of cow dung and sit on a bed that was made out of cow hide. You don't see the world. If you stay in palaces, in vacation sites and tourist places, you haven't seen Jamaica if you stay in the resorts and you never really touch the Jamaican people in the towns. I got to see the very high and the very low, which gives you a very balanced perspective of what is possible and what is all at the same time. Reality and, and the possibility of what could happen. What did crushing, I, I love this analogy, crushing, pressing, that's how you create new wine. Mm-hmm. What did the crushing look like for you and what happens in that crushing process? It's not just one, it's many. And um, you mean we have to do it over, we have to go through the crushing over and over, Pastor? I think at Bishop, I should say. I think, I think at different <laughs> stages in our life, we go through crushings uh, to some degree. And some of them are overt and obvious, and some of them are covert and internal. Not every crushing is a death or a sickness or a dread disease or the loss of a job or a divorce. Some crushings are just stress and pressure. Some crushings are inner issues of how we see ourselves. Some some crushings are siblings we love but can't be close to. You know, uh, life has a lot of ways to crush us. And the reason I wrote the book is that in the process of that crushing, 
there's there's always the gift of wine that flows out of it that that you come out of it stronger and in another form and and that it's not necessarily a bad thing even though it felt bad because at the end of it all if you go through the process we we preach about promises but people go home to process and so sometimes what we hear in the pulpit doesn't line up with what we see in our lives. And I think that we need, as ministers, need to do a better job of preparing people that before you get to the promise, you have to go through a process. We're not very process-oriented. We don't have much patience anymore. We want it right now. And things that are given to you too quickly crush you because it is the process that drains you. It is the struggle that makes you strong is resistance weight training. If you, if you don't have the resistance, you won't build the muscle. And so I wrote crushing, not to make everybody say, Oh God, please crush me, but to help people make sense out of the parts of their lives that are not working or didn't work or didn't turn out the way they thought and to make them look for the gift in it and try to have a more positive attitude about it and wait for that gift to ferment. And sometimes the wisdom of the aged only comes through the failures of the youth. That's so good. And I, I, I like how you compare it to wine. So I'll do anything for a little bit of wine. Right? <laughs> I'll go there? through it for some wine. Good analogy. What, what did crushing look like for you, though? And you said it happens over and over. You mean, you mean other than being born in between two bed, dead babies and, and uh, my father getting sick when I was 10 and dying when I was 16 or my mother dying in my arms at 40 of Alzheimer's and living in my house till she died? Uh, you mean my daughter getting pregnant at 13 and, 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 and the daughter of a minister? And she's such a... Great example of my book. She should have written the book. She she probably could have written it better than me. I thought that was just the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen to me. And now that same daughter is ministering all over the world. Look at what the doors that God opened up through that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I now realize I would have done anything to stop that from happening. I mean, absolutely anything. I would anything. And if I would have stopped it from happening, I would have missed. The beauty. I was watching her the other night on the stage and jammed out place speaking with such power. And, and, uh, and I have the baby in part to thank for it because it was her being crushed that produced the wine of ministry that made her who she was. And it's much, see, I'm a protector. I'm a huge protector. I love by protecting you and providing for you. So I hadn't done anything to protect and provide covering for her, but I would have ruined her. God is so much wiser than us. He knows exactly how much pain we can bear and what we need to go through to produce in us the sage wisdom that she would not be who she is today. And who she is today it's absolutely amazing. My other daughter, Cora, uh, suffers from infertility. I held her in my arms and cried over and over again as she either lost babies or couldn't get pregnant or got negative results time and time again. She wanted her babies. All she ever wanted in all of her life was to have a child. I spent money. I sent her to clinics. We did everything we could. 
She ended up running our children's ministry. She ended up adopting children. She ended up ministering to women who were infertile. None of that would have been possible had she not suffered and been through that disappointment. And these aren't things that you want for your kids. No. But this is what God wants. Yeah, evidently. Or he would have done it differently. Mm-hmm. And you have to accept his decisions. Uh, and here, here, here to me is the whole art of walking with God. The whole art of walking with God requires that you give up what you had in mind. And that... <laughs> you mean relinquishing <laughs> control? Yeah, which is a problem. I know. I know. It is so much easier to write a check. Let me give an offering. <laughs> you know, I'll write you a check. I'll give you an offering. I'll sow a seed. Uh, I'll go down and, and, and feed cookies to little homeless kids. I'll go and work at the hospital. I'll do anything rather than to give up what I had in mind. So there's two things. You have to give up what you had in mind which is not easy to do and to trust that his wisdom is better than your own. And, and, and the second thing, which may be even more important is to challenge the story you tell yourself about what happened because we tell our stories from our perspective and it may be our truth, but that doesn't mean it is the truth. And to give up that, I want to shout you down right now. <laughs> yeah. so good. You know, to, 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 to go back in your mind and have the courage, this takes courage. I want to warn your audience, this takes real courage to admit that the way you remember it might not be exactly what happened. Because when you write the books you read, you're always the hero. Let's take another look at it and and look at it through the eyes of the other person. And then you get to see a total perspective that none of us are all good or all bad or all innocent or all guilty. He was wrong. I was right. He was a terrible person. That's a wonderful thing to tell yourself because it, 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 it indemnifies you from any possibility of responsibility and you never grow from that. You will only grow when you own your part of the story. We live in our own bubble of self-importance too often. Absolutely. You, you talk about this the ministry, this calling, and how it's opened doors to, to, to speaking with people you never thought possible. You've, you've met with President Obama and President Bush. What do you think, especially in this climate with President Trump, where he seems to be dividing a lot of the faith leaders, what... What do you think the role of faith in politics is, not just in general, but particularly in this moment that we find ourselves in? I think that we must take responsibilities for the outcome in our countries. Whoever ends up in the White House is a symptom of our society and not the leader of our society. They they reflect to us what we valued at that moment and that's the amazing thing about democracy. And ultimately, what causes our way of life to prevail is that at the end of the day, it is not who sits in the Oval Office, and I have known many presidents. It is who sits on the couch and who holds the remote control and who washes the dishes that will take our country forward because we have the last say at the end of the day. 
And no one can divide us if we refuse and enforce the ability to become united. We're not united by a White House. I love the idea when we get that. We're united on the couch and in the living room and in, in, in the coffee shop and in the restaurant. And I think that message loud and clear will change any disruption that we see in our leadership. So the division that we're feeling in society is not symptomatic of the White House. It's symptomatic of us in general. It started before him. He he tapped into something that already pre-existed. And I think that that we have to own our part of the story. It's the same thing. You know, you, we love to say the story. Oh, it's, it's easy to demonize one person and say, this is what, what wrong looks like. Or on the other side of it, this is what right looks like. It's so easy to do that. It's almost like going through a divorce. He's bad. I'm good. And then, and we, that's what we tell ourselves. That's what we tell the children. In reality, there are some things that are not good together. Uh, and then there is, then there is the need to understand the problem that comes when you bring the culture of business into the culture of politics. And they are both different kinds of cultures and they both have their own toxicity and they both have their own strengths. And bringing all that together and sorting all of that out, uh, is something that it has caused our nation to reverberate in the most scary way I've ever seen in all my life. And I have to believe at the end of the day, I have to believe this, just to go to sleep at night, that ultimately right will prevail over wrong and good will prevail over evil, that ultimately we will, we will make the corrections necessary to be that union, that, that more perfect union that the founding fathers had in mind. That leads me to ask, what is the church's role right now? What is their number one role considering the times we're in and the climate? The number one role for the, for the church in America is to stop pastoring the members and start pastoring the city. To reach beyond the parameters of your constituency and care about people who may not ever come to your church and not always try to fix them and make them good enough that they fit within the elite society of your belief system. Just love them? Sometimes just love them. Sometimes just feed them. Sometimes just clothe them. You don't have to give up your theological position. It's like your children may not embrace your ideas, but you still feed them. That kind of thinking needs to get in the church, and it needs. And let me tell you something else. <laughs> See, you got me started. Now. <laughs> um, I, and I want to say this: this is really important. Corporate America has a huge responsibility in this narrative, because corporate America may actually have more power than political entities, because they fuel the engines that run the campaigns. And corporate America traditionally runs from faith-based leaders. But if you want to give back to the community, if you want to connect to the community, you have to bring us to the table, particularly in the African-American community. You cannot uh, disassociate from us and affect the community the way you want to. If you want diversity and you're looking for people of color 
who have master's and doctorate degrees and you can't find them, the reason you can't find them is because you don't know them. I know exactly where they are. They're in my choir stand. They're ushering in my church. They're sitting in my pews. It is not that they don't exist. You said recently on CNN that the church is compromising its integrity for photo ops at the White House. Did I say that? You did. You did. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that there are... I've been in and out throughout the whole process, regardless of Democrat or Republican, because we must understand, regardless of who wins, that person is going to make decisions that affect the future. And we can't be so busy enjoying the fight that we don't embrace the fact that they're going to speak for us in North Korea, and they're going to speak for us in Russia, and they're going to speak for us in Saudi Arabia, and they're going to speak for us in, in Moscow and in the UK and all over the world. And we need to be listening at that conversation because that conversation will determine whether you and I go home tonight safely. We're almost done here because I know you got to go. But, you know, right after 9-11, you were featured on the cover of Time with the question, then is he the next Billy Graham? So now that Billy Graham is no longer here, who carries the torch now? I don't think the world will ever see another Billy Graham. Uh, the world has changed. Times have changed. Billy Graham, who preached in tents and crusades around America and did a lot of amazing things ahead of his time. But now the generation is streaming and, and downloading apps and, and the world has changed. But that doesn't mean that we can't have influence. I hope that we don't make the mistake that the African-American community has made waiting on the next Dr. King. I don't think there will ever be another Dr. King. I don't think there will ever be another Nelson Mandela. I don't think there will ever be another Billy Graham. And and I don't want to be another anybody. I just simply want to be me because I don't know the cost of the oil in their alabaster box. I don't know what what they gave up privately, personally, to be them. It's enough trying to be me. And so while I was honored by the headlines and I appreciated the article and it was just an amazing moment in my life in history, um, I always had it in context that Billy Graham was Billy Graham And T.D. Jakes was T.D. Jakes. Mm -hmm. There's only one Bishop T.D. Jakes, that's (laughs) for sure. Last question for you. You know, in running a megachurch or what you would call a family, there's a lot of bishops, pastors that are scrutinized because with great power comes great responsibility, also comes great profit. So you'll hear... You'll hear Joel Osteen is criticized for profiting off the gospel. I know you've received those criticisms. How do you deal with those? It has become less and less of an issue for me as people understood me, as they went to the theater and saw my movies, as uh, they watched me dibble and dabble in Hollywood, as they watched me do my talk show, they begin to understand that I had a diversity of income streams. It has never been an issue in my church because my church always knew one of the things I will do is put the money where you can see it. And the story goes on. My mind is enlightened. My heart and soul are full. Bishop T.D. Jakes. I look forward to that wine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. 
as always, a big thanks to you for listening. We'd love it if you subscribed and gave us a rating. And thank you to the team here at ABC Radio. Susie Liu, Lewis Millman, Mike Dubusky, Joyce Alcantara, Brianna Montalvo, Trevor Hastings, Josh Cohen, and Andrew Kaub. I'll talk to you next week on Journeys of Faith.